Before we begin today's episode, we'd like to thank our corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, for their generous support. Fiduciary Trust International helps families with significant wealth manage that wealth and the complexities that come with it across the generations. Building your legacy is about more than just managing your investments. Fiduciary Trust International helps you look at your wealth holistically today and plan effectively for your future. They will help you structure your wealth so you can enjoy it now and provide maximum benefit to your heirs and the causes you care about. If you're looking for trust, estate, and advanced tax planning services to help you grow and protect your wealth, check out Fiduciary Trust International at fiduciarytrust.com. What famous opera singer was in Dallas performing Medea when she was fired from the Metropolitan Opera by Rudolf Bing? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is made possible via generous funding from its corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, and support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. Interested in learning more about opera? Look no further than the Metropolitan Opera Guild's virtual courses. Presented through the virtual learning platform Thinkific, with these self-paced courses, you can expand your operatic knowledge from anywhere. Get started with our Opera 101 bundle, exploring the history of opera, musical terms, and different voice types. Or delve deeper with our courses on score reading, conducting, operatic singing, Verdi, Wagner, Maria Callas, and more. To start exploring and register for a course, visit metguild.thinkific.com. If you guessed Maria Callas, you are correct. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and today we have the second of three episodes exploring how the operatic canon is being expanded, featuring Guild lecturer Matthew Timmermans. In the second episode, he will dive into star-studded revivals, looking at somewhat unknown operas that are often revived with all-star casts, such as Carabini's Medea and Giordano's Fedora. In lecture two, we're looking at star-studded revivals, so if we're going to do a little a little trip through a lot of singers, which is one of my favorite things to do. So please, I hope you enjoy it with me. I'm going to bring us back. So this question of boredom and how we're, oh, maybe that's a severe way to put it, but this question of how we change the canon in order to include new other works that we want to have. And instead of looking forward, like we did in our last lecture, toward new works, this time we're going to look backward to works that we haven't seen in a long time and the possibility of dusting them off and putting maybe a new foil on top of them. But yeah, so what I want to get at with this this idea of what's the solidification of the canon is we, we become really attached to this idea of like musical works, these things that are, we can't throw away because they have such musical worth that they, you know, they have to be seen every season again and again and again because they just have that value. We also have this idea of preserving the past. So what we're going to see now with having more and more revivals happen is this idea of, yeah, uncovering this history that is clearly we value seeing and we think is worth putting on the stage, which often happens to be less inspiring new people to perform or to compose new operas and more so 
going back to composers that we already trust and looking at more of the operas that they compose that haven't been performed as often. A very famous episode of reviving an opera that was composed a long time ago was Gluck's Orfeo in the middle of the 19th century. It was actually adapted by Hector Berlioz. Some of you may know him as a French composer. He mostly is known for symphonic works, but he Les Troyennes is one of his famous operas that is often, well, used to be performed at the Met. So he adapted, he's a, a newer composer that is adapting Gluck's Orfeo, which is from the 18th century. And he ends up being it's suggested to him by Meyerbeer, who I mentioned before, the French grand opera composer. He's like, you should take this very famous singer, which is Pauline Viardot, and you should adapt Orfeo for her. Because Orfeo originally was written for a castrato, which is a man who has been castrated, so his voice would be higher. And then when it came to Paris, the Paris were really not into the idea of having castrati. They thought it was very inhumane, so they didn't have that tradition. So in 1774, when Orfeo was brought to Paris, it was sung, but it was actually adapted for a tenor. And then, of course, going back now, we have what we're having in the 19th century as people are reviving these works and bringing them back. They want to compose them closer to what they believe the composer would have saw them as. So there begins to be this reverence for the composer's wishes, which is something that you might be surprised to hear in the 19th century was not something everybody cared about, um, which is a very modern idea we have now where we want to see it as they would have saw it. At that time, they were more like, I want to see it as I want to hear it with our new techniques, but I'll hear that older opera, right? Which is like the whole changing it from castrati to tenor, now to mezzo-soprano as the lead character of Fail. So what Berlioz did in this case was a lot of people were pressuring him to modernize the orchestration, and Berlioz said, no, 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 I want to go back to this, as close as I can to this original orchestration by Gluck. And so he did that in this production, and people were very excited about it. It was a totally new thing to do. But what we're noticing here is we're getting a closer mentality to how we now think about doing revivals. It's very exciting to hear a composer's work closer to how he or she, I mean, we use he mostly just for obvious reasons, would have heard it, or people, audiences at that time would have heard it. But it's just interesting to see as, as this mindset is changing to bring us to a time where we assume that was just the de facto way to listen to opera. And obviously this has impacted the canon, because I don't know if many of you know this, but it's actually this Berlioz version that most often is revived and performed. Although, I mean, there have been, now there's a lot of recordings where you can hear like the Berlioz version, then the Gluck version, then the version that was like in between the, the Berlioz and the Gluck version, and then the baritone version for Fischer Dieskau. So a whole bunch of different ones you can grab now. But usually when you see it in an opera house, uh, it's usually the Berlioz version that's uh, revived. If, a good question is because next season we're having Orfeo and we're having it with a countertenor. So I, don't, I assume they're going back to the original, but I actually have no idea. So something to keep tabs on. So as I mentioned, this is now getting to this new idea of what we call new historicism. So going back and finding these older works and then kind of dusting them off and using a little history to perform them as we think they might have been heard in their time. And this becomes a sort of new fetishization of the boredom that I mentioned, that where audiences want to find these new works. And we see this historical trend where certain composers get focused on and their works get revived. And so I just want to list some of these off because I always think it's funny where we don't realize how recent it was that these became added to the canon and also a lot more interest was surrounding them. So first there was the kind of Verdi Renaissance in the 1920s Germany, and this is when some of the other Verdi operas that weren't necessarily canonic started getting performed, things like Nabucco, for example. Then we have the reemergence of Mozart operas in the 1930s, where we're getting some of the non, like not Don Giovanni, not Le Nozze, but some of the operas before that that are not as often performed start getting revived and people have an interest in them. Then we have the Bel Canto Revival, which I'm sure many of you know, uh, partially from listening to other things I've lectured on, but in the 1950s, there was the Bel Canto Revival with Maria Callas, which we'll talk about. 
And then more recent ones, we have the Rossini revival in the 1970s and 80s, which also hit the Metropolitan Opera, as some of you might have remembered, with June Anderson, for example, performing Semiramide. Day. Here was a very big deal. It was a huge production. also had Marilyn Horn in it. But this is the historicist passion. This is the new way of exploring the operatic canon and bringing new things with composers that we have canonic works that we know and love, and now we want to hear other ones that they've composed. So I'm going to focus on the Bel Canto revival because we're going to talk about Medea today. And what's interesting particularly about this revival and has a common trend with other revivals that I was speaking about is that it often gets spearheaded and has favored artists to bring these operas with them to other houses and also that people demand to see in them. So I'm going to focus first on Maria Callas. Now, why I'm focusing on her is particularly because she was known at this time in the, in the early 19, well, it was the 1950s for reviving bel canto works. And why she became so associated with that is partially because her fame, at that time at least, and why she got a recording contract, which was so rare at that time, rested on her versatility. So she could perform Wagner one night, and then the other night she performed this much lighter repertoire, which was bel canto. And the first record that she did, that would have been with EMI, or originally their angel component. And so on it, first she sings Wagner from Tristan, and then she sings Norma and Ipuritani after it, which was, people were like, oh my goodness, how could she do that in such close proximity? It was a big deal. And then so as a result, this got people not only interested in bel canto, because they were like, oh, we can hear a larger voice singing it. But the other reason they were interested in Kalas doing it is because many believed that she brought a seriousness to these roles that wasn't there before. Before, they all, all assumed that things like Lucia, things like Sonambula, these ingenues had to be for, um, performed by these flitty coloratura sopranos who were just showing off the entire time. People like Lily Pons, who was famous at the Metropolitan Opera in the 1940s. And then you had someone like Maria Callas come along, who takes this big voice and wields it, but at the same time gives it this sort of beautiful characterization and nuance that no one was used to. And of course, I'd be woeful to not mention the fact that this was also connected to the fact that people could listen to these on records now, right? Beforehand, they didn't have complete offers on records. It was the 1950s where you have LPs start to come up in a full catalog of one singer for a record label. And so this all worked together to help expand the callous mystique as we now know it and also the fame at the time. Anyway, I thought I'd give you a little example here. I just wanted to play a clip of Maria Callas singing the excerpt from Ipuritani that she sings on that first record. And so what we hear is Maria Callas is singing the beginning of her mad scene. And it's, it's done in such a way where it's just, there's such an attention to the melody and, and, and that detail and also adding these sort of sighs as well as a girlish quality to it that is absolutely, I don't know, to me it's entrancing. But obviously, as we've all giggled about, there are many, many problems with in terms of how femininity is portrayed with that. But we'll keep that in our back pocket for the moment. So here is Maria Callas performing that aria from Ipuritani. Thank <laughs> you. 
So as some of you may know, one of the revivals that Kalas was almost singularly known for was her performance of Medea, Cherubini's Medea, which of course was revived on the Met stage back in the fall. And I'm sure some of you, there was even a New York Times article that was basically just talking about Medea and Maria Callas and like the, the mantle that Radvanovsky has to carry in performing this opera. So you know that Medea is performed in Italian uh, nowadays. Well, originally it was not. It was actually originally written as a French opera and it was an opera comique by Luigi Cherubini. A comique meaning that it would have had spoken dialogue in between the scenes, which of course you probably also noted seeing it at the Met there was no speaking on the stage because that was added after. A little side note, it was based on, or it is based on the Euripides tragedy of Medea as well as the French Pierre Cornel play. So a little bit about Cherubini. What's interesting about Cherubini is he's sort of this missing link that we often, because we don't seem to have a lot of composers that happen around the turn of the century between the 18th century and the 19th century that are just canonic now. So he's like this connection between Mozart and then Rossini who actually really revered Cherubini at this time. So Medea, as I mentioned, was a French opera, so it premiered in Paris in 1797. And despite actually being one of his most well-known works, it actually didn't do very well and it wasn't immediately revived. And then that has began the sort of spotty history until the more recent revivals that have happened in the 20th century that we're going to talk about. Interesting, though, in its progression, it went through a number of transformations before it became the opera that we hear today. One of those is a German translation by Franz Lachner. So that happened in 1800. And then that German translation was later taken and then somewhat another man added recitatives to it. So got rid of all that spoken dialogue because it was no longer really in vogue at that time, especially not in Germany. And so they're like, let's make it sound more connected in 1855 by adding some recitative. So for everyone who doesn't, recitative is usually the, the musical material that happens between arias. And at least earlier in, I mean, at this time it would become more thorough, but You'll notice when you hear it, it sounds more like let's play a chord, then we're going to sing some, some sort of speech-like melody over top of it, and then we'll have another chord. That's it in its most simplistic format. And then by the time that you're getting to where it's, the recitatives are added in 1850, which are not by Cherubini at this time, this is another person adding it, they start to sound a little more romantic. Romantic in the sense the style sounds a little more 19th century than what was originally there. In 1865, we finally have its London premiere in Italian, and this now has some new recitatives written by a totally different person who's added it in for the style of the time. And then finally, it's in 1909, where we have a new Italian translation of that original German translation. And it is that one that ends up, which also has recitatives, that ends up becoming the version that is revived with Maria Callas in 1953, and then is now the one that we hear at the Metropolitan Opera today. A little fun thing that I learned recently is that apparently in 2013, some scholars went into the archive and got the score of the original, the original score for Medea. And apparently they used some x-rays because what had happened is that, well, I mean, historically we know what happened is the opera was too long. So what Cherubini did is he took some sort of ink and just blacked out the areas where he was like, we have to cut this, we just have to get rid of it. And so one of these areas was apparently an aria for Medea at the very end of the opera. Some of you may remember at the end, she kind of like screams some words and then it's over. And so apparently there's this aria that might have been, ha been there, um, which would have been very stylistic for the time because we always loved a, a final aria at the end of these sort of, you know, late 18th century, early 19th century operas. Anyway, so what they did is they used x-rays so that they could go back and see what that is. And following this idea, as I was mentioning, of new historicism, of seeing operas as they, I mean, might have been heard, or in this case, might possibly have been heard if there wasn't the constraints of the audience not wanting to be there for too long, 
maybe one day we'll add this aria to it. It's not in the Met version, as you noticed. I was just going to play for you. This is the end sequence. What happens here is we have Medea has killed both her children at the very end of the opera, and then uh, Apollo's chariot comes down, which lets her escape, and she also lights the, the temple on fire, of course. And we hear her basically scream the lines of her revenge here at the very end, which are short and succinct, and there's definitely no aria. Uh, this is Leonie Riesenek uh, in a performance that she did in the 1970s. I mean, one thing I find interesting about that scene is you'll notice there's nothing underneath her, right? She Basically, the orchestra plays two strong chords and then Medea sings over it. When we usually hear historically restored recordings, they take things a lot faster, right? They do less of the sort of very romantic holding on to notes and, and shouting for a very long time as Leonie Riesenek does so wonderfully. But it's interesting to think maybe how curt that might have been when it was first performed or if we did it historically, right? It could have just been... What I'm trying to say is in the score, the way it's written, it doesn't necessarily dictate that it has to be held as long as she held the notes. So it could have just been like a very perfunctory. You imagine, it could be very passive and just kind of, and we're done. <laughs> so we're back to Maria Callas now. We've done our, our historical venture. And as I mentioned, modern performances are based on the version that Maria Callas sang in 1953 in Florence, which was revived partially, although it wasn't Tudio Serafin who conducted it, it was partially um, Tudio Serafin who was Maria Callas' mentor and who was very interested in all these bel canto works, who definitely had a hand in this. It was apparently so successful, the next season it then went to La Scala, which is, I mean, thinking about it, it's actually very quick, and which is a lot quicker than we see opera move from, other, from house to house today. And it was conducted by a young unknown named Leonard Bernstein. And then the most famous production, at least in my mind, is the production from Dallas in 1958. So it was this production just before that Maria Callas was infamously fired from the Metropolitan Opera in 1958. She was originally scheduled and in discussions with Rudolf Bing to sing uh, Verdi's La, uh, La Traviata as well as Macbeth. And these sort of discussions, as was sort of infamously known about Maria Callas, she would take very long to agree to contracts, although it was her and her husband were also working on those negotiations. So this was a common thing, and I mean, Bing definitely got fed up with it, and so even though Maria Callas said, I don't want to do two operas with such different voice types in close proximity, that was her claim, Bing said, I've had enough of this, and he sent a telegram to Maria Callas terminating the contract, and the next day, the headlines read, Bing fires Callas, which undoubtedly not only took the entire eye of the world, being like, oh my goodness, the most famous, right, the most famous institution in the world for opera has just fired Maria Callas, who was already a huge name, and was also generally written about as being, well, her famous name was the Tigress, right? She was known for, for her divadom, I suppose you could say, or her, her not acting according very nicely to her 
colleagues and also to the audiences. So this all ended up just expanding and, and, and growing that aura of Kalas being this unwieldy diva. And Nicola Ruscino was the conductor of this particular performance. And so this is what he recalls of the night when she came after receiving that telegram. He says, that night she came to the theater looking like an empress. She wore an ermine thing that draped to the floor and she had every piece of jewelry she ever owned. I mean, this is obviously clearly very overemphasized. And she said, you all know what's happened. Tonight for me is a very difficult night and I will need the help of every one of you. Well, she proceeded to give a performance of Medea that was historical. We were very lucky to actually have this performance of Medea recorded. It's sort of a cult classic now because many believe that the fire and rage that she had toward Bing following the telegram was then fueled into this particular performance in her, you know, basically killing her children and then burning down this temple. So what we're going to hear is the scene. This is just before she goes to kill her children where she is finally sort of uh, psyching herself up to do the act of killing them with the dagger. And you're going to hear Maria Callas in all of her brilliance at the end of the 1950s, where she's sort of just throwing, throwing her chest voice out there, really pushing the sound, and it's so deep and grungy, and then simultaneously moving up to the top of her register, which is kind of getting a little bit wild at this point as her voice is starting to deteriorate, but still very strong and, and screechy um, in some ways, which is, really works for Medea. What I'm trying to get at is there's a sort of abandon in the way she performs this scene that is absolutely captivating. How you can kind of hear with the where the microphone is, how she's like moving around stage and like clearly like vacillating on her decision. You gotta love the old recordings where you can kind of hear that. But also, I want to note that this history, I always wonder about how this history surrounding Bing and the timing with this Dallas production perhaps brought Medea to more audiences because they were just interested in knowing about the gossip around it and how, and possibly as a result of it, I mean, we see also with the article in the New York Times about Medea bringing up Maria Callas every time this opera is performed, how it's 
in some ways, Maria Callas' legend that has led to the revival of this opera and getting it close to being something that's canonic, right? As opposed to kind of the opera itself, which is just an interesting flip in comparison to some other operas, like a Verdi opera, which we revive always because it's Verdi, right? So this opera is particularly famed for its vocal difficulty. I mean, you can hear you have to plunge down to kind of the lower depths of the soprano voice, and then you immediately have to flip up, move through this middle transition, which you could hear there with Maria Callas. Even she was struggling with it, where it got kind of foggy in her voice in the middle, and then shoot up for these high notes that it just, it requires a versatility that is very difficult for most singers to do. And it's interesting, and also, of course, the legend of Callas being behind it makes a lot of people fearful of taking on this role. It's interesting to note that many of the so-called second Calluses did take on this role. Uh, the first one, uh, we're not going to listen to her perform, but there's, of course, Leila Genju, who gets associated with Callas simply because she takes up a lot of the repertoire that she originally debuted, things like Anna Bolena, for example. It was not, Callas performed it, or revived it, and performed it in the 1950s at La Scala, but then it was actually Leila Genju who took on the, the radio broadcast of it, and then later would take on all the bel canto roles that started to become popular once Callas was gone. We're not going to listen to her, though, but the next one is Leonie Riesenek, who often many people would think is not associated with Callas, but actually in the 1950s and 60s, she was, majorly in part because she was the one to replace Maria Callas in the Macbeth premiere at the Metropolitan Opera, which was also her debut at the Metropolitan Opera. Another reason they're often compared is because of Leonie Riesenek's infamously wonderful acting. She is a very committed stage actress on stage, and she's also incredibly campy, which is what I absolutely love about her, but is amazingly um, engaging when she's on stage. So please do not, please take when I say she's campy is absolutely a compliment. I think it's delightful to watch her. next person I want to note is probably the most well-known for the term second Kalas, and this was a personal favorite singer of mine, actually, which is Sylvia Schaas. And Sylvia, I think I, I talked about in the, again, in the Maria Callas lectures that I did, I talk about the story where Sylvia Sash, a critic, called her the second Kalas. And then it was while she's doing these performances of La Traviata. And after one of the performances, man came backstage and approaches her and says, would you like to meet Maria Callas? And she says, I mean, I guess so, okay. So she gets invited back to Maria Callas's apartment where, you know, when she talks about it, she's kind of like, it was kind of unreal. I mean, who would have thought this would happen? Like, was this really happening to me? Because it was, like many opera singers at the time, Maria Callas was a huge inspiration. And so she ends up, Maria Callas does come and asks her to sing for her, which she prepares singing Traviata, which Callas says, it's just too easy. She performs for her. and. The entire time she apparently performs, Maria Callas is just in the other room. She actually like isn't in the room watching her. But why these two opera singers were compared, there was partially the fact that Sylvia Sash was incredibly beautiful. Um, and she also had those the, the sort of black, I mean, the black, dark features, right? There was their acting on stage. Sylvia Sash was also known as an incredible actress on stage. There was also her voice, which had similar impurities that we call them, I've used that with quotation marks, where she kind of had this grungy bottom, but then in the middle she had this covered quality that some of you may know from Maria Callas' voice as well. 
And then the top notes could often be shrill and sort of piercing. Another thing that obviously brought them together was that Sylvia Schaas ended up taking on a lot of same roles that Maria Callas sang. I mean, there was Traviata, there was Tosca. She did Medea, which maybe <laughs> might have been really asking for it at that point. But this was 1977, so this is further into her career. Anyway, I wanted to play for you. This is the first aria, so this is when uh, Medea has come back from her island abode and is now begging uh, Jason to well, stay with her instead of marrying someone else. And we hear here some of, it really taps into many of the amazing attributes of Sylvia Chasse's voice, which is these stunning pianos that she can do and also this absolutely beautiful musicality she has in creating a long line. I think she's delightful, but she's a very controversial singer still today. I think a lot of these trends show up in the ways that Sandra Radvanovsky then spoke about her preparing for the role and her interest in the role of Medea. We see, obviously, the tradition of considering the role very technically demanding for the singer. And, of course, this tradition of acting being very important. And that's partially, I mean, 
one could argue that acting is important in perhaps the, the operas that was originally performed, although we can't technically know that because we don't know what it actually looked like. But arguably saying that specifically for this opera, I can't imagine it being disassociated from Maria Callas, who was known as an incredible actress. One of the things that Sondra Radvanovsky notes about is that you can't just act it. She said, you have to really live it, which again is kind of interesting going back into the legend surrounding the 1958 firing of Kalas and the Dallas performance of Medea, right? Her channeling her own personal experience into it. And speaking of Maria Kalas, isn't it interesting to know, mostly because I'm so sad we don't have a recording of it, that Maria Kalas also sang Giordano's Fedora at, the, at La Scala. Umberto Giordano wrote Fedora, which is a composer you don't often hear at the Met and often don't hear around the world anymore. Uh, he was a very famous Barismo composer, and some of you may know him a few years ago, or at least it was supposed to also be revived recently, was his Andrea Chenier. And I mean, it's come mostly to wide popular fame because of being included in uh, Philadelphia, the 1993 film, where we have, uh, uh, we have Tom Hanks doing a monologue alongside La Mama Morta, which is the famous aria sung, in this case, by Maria Callas. Do you mind this music? Do you like opera? I am not that familiar with opera, Andrew. Oh, this is my favorite aria. It's Maria Callas. Sandria Chenier. Umberto Giordano. This is Madalena. She's saying how during the French Revolution, a mob set fire to her house. And her mother died, saving her. She's look, the place that cradled me is burning. I just wanted to give you a little taste of some Giordano other than Fedora that you can experience. I hands down, Chenier uh, is actually one of my favorite operas. I highly recommend uh, listening to it. So the actual show that we're focusing on, which is Fedora, was originally a play written by Sardou, and it originally was seen by Giordano in 1889. He wanted to make an opera out of it. And the playwright said, no, I have no idea who you are. And then a few years later, Giordano was still relatively unknown, but was up and coming in the musical world. So this was 1894 now. And Giordano goes through his publisher now to ask again for the rights to this play, which then Sardou gives, asks an incredible amount of money for it, which they were not going to pay. And so once again, we do not see Fedora come to fruition. And then it was on the third try, which was after 1896, which is when Andrea Chenier came out, was an absolute success. And suddenly they were able to reach an agreement and have the rights transferred over to Giordano. I like to describe the plot kind of like a bit of an Agatha, uh, Agatha Christie whodunit. It's kind of a, a mystery while at the same time being very dramatic. I also thought that David McVigar gives a nice summary of what is so special about this plot. He says the whole confection is a sort of an operatic guilty pleasure, comparing the production to binge watching a season of Downton Abbey. It has a sort of misty, nostalgic, schmaltzy appeal. Noting how confusing it is, Sonia Yoncheva had this to say. She even acknowledged that it, she was confused. 
took me the entire production at La Scala and then starting rehearsals on this before I fully understood the plot, she said. It's a very complicated story, so one should understand what is happening. I challenged myself to do the plot as, as succinctly as possible. So here we go. So in 1881, Princess Fedora finds out that her lover has been killed. And then she vows to avenge him. Act one, we're done. Act two, she follows the suspect who was mentioned in act one, Count Ipanov, to Paris. He naturally confesses his love to her, as one does, and then eventually also confesses the fact that he killed her fiance. With no context, because one doesn't want to do that in opera. So Fedora runs off. She writes to the police saying, I know who did it, and sends off that letter. Then Count Ipanov comes back and basically explains that, oh, I killed your fiance, Vladimir, actually because he was having an affair with my wife. And then it turned out that he tried to shoot me, and then in self-defense, I killed him. And she's like, oh, well, that makes sense, of course. And so then she confesses her love to him. So now we're into Act 3. So in Act 3, they're lovers. We have our bright, shining moment in Verismo opera. Then we find out that Ipanov's brother has been arrested for the crime by the police, and he dies in his imprisonment, tragically drowning, because he's apparently a very destitute prison, whatever this place was. And then as a result of hearing the news, the mother of Count Ipanov and his brother dies from anguish, naturally. It is opera after all. And then Fedora hears news of this. She feels incredibly guilty about what has happened and confesses to the Count. At first, the Count doesn't take this well. And so the first reaction that Fedora has is, I'm going to grab the poison that's around my neck. I'm going to take it. And now we're going to solve all our problems. And so then the Count is obviously now distraught and calls for a doctor about the fact that she's dying. But unfortunately, it's too late. There is no cure. And Fedora dies tragically on stage. So now I'm going to take us back into Singerland. So Fedora was created in 1898 in Milan, so at La Scala, and it was created for Gemma Bellincioni. Of this singer, what we know is that apparently Verdi very much admired her acting ability. She performed Violetta in La Traviata in 1886 when he, he made this comment. However, apparently he was not so impressed with her vocal technique, although he really did like her dramatic presence. And so he did look over her for the part of Desdemona when it was performed there in Otello. Well, interesting fact. Nonetheless, her vocal technique is actually very suited for Verismo, if not Verdi, which has a sort of accentuated diction and also, of course, this arresting stage presence. She apparently sang with great passion, and the voice apparently was not very large, but it was marred by a distinct flutter in the voice, which we'll notice when we come to see some of our other performers. It seems to be something that happened with a lot of Verismo singers, which is kind of interesting to think about maybe that being proper as opposed to something we want to avoid. Another role that she created that some of you might know is Santuzza in 1890 in Piero Mascagni's Cavalleria Rusticana. There is a recording that she did about a decade or so after she premiered that role. And I kind of just want you to let you listen to it to hear what the Verismo style was like then. And the reason I think it might be shocking to you is that it's a little more wild and abandoned, shall we say, is maybe a nice way of putting it than a lot of us think opera would have been at this time. Some might argue that when we, it's sung now, it's sung with a, a little more, I don't know, maybe control. Like, so what you're going to hear is you notice a lot of swoops, which some people may say, oh, opera singers never swoop. That's a pop singer thing. But opera singers did. There's lots of um, sighs that are added into the, into the music as extra dramatic effect, which a lot may say is too cheesy now to be put into singing opera. It has to be um, far more about the voice than these added dramatic effects. Um, you're going to notice a lot of chest voice. And like with Maria Callas, we heard a lot of that pushing down into the lower register. That was very popular in the Verismo, especially with Verismo opera, um, which later a lot of people 
argued you shouldn't do that because it's very dangerous for the voice. But again, we're seeing these sort of risks being taken with Verismo opera that a lot of us assume retroactively was not the case. And then, of course, as was mentioned in the description of her voice, you're going to hear that flutter on the, on the upper notes. Uh, something curious to note is that her upper range may sound lighter than you would imagine with opera singers. It is possible that at that time, the upper singers, well, sopranos in particular, sang with a lighter tone on top. But it's also possible that recording devices at that time, it's not that they couldn't pick it up as well necessarily, but also when you were recording to get a good record, you had to move close and far away from the microphone in order for it to pick it up and not cause it to just sound like nothing on the, on the gramophone when this is being in wax cylinders at the time. Anyway, so the point being, it could sound lighter because the singers were moving away from the microphone in order to have it pick up on the wax cylinder properly. This is Santuzza's aria. So this is when Santuzza is telling the mother of Turiodu that she was seduced by her son and now her son has moved on to some other woman. Well, the other woman is Lola. <laughs> another clip of her singing. It actually so happens that she also recorded the first act aria from Fedora. So this is the moment when Fedora walks on stage. She's come to see Vladimir, her fiance, and of course she's saying how excited and how much she loves him, as one does in the first aria they have in an opera. And so we're going to hear that here again with the same singer. You'll notice the same things, the sort of light fluttery top and then the sort of really chesty bottom. And also some of the, the dramatic, you might know some like the dramatic flips of the voice that she does to add extra emotional effect. So this brings us to Enrico Caruso, who was also her leading man across from her as Count Ipanov. And this was actually Caruso before he was really known, so he was still an up-and-coming singer. It's several years before he would make some of the first operatic recordings in the little hotel room with piano that would explode the recording industry and suddenly make all opera singers have to be recording excerpts of themselves. It so happens in this the, the sort of tale that we're told about the hotel in Milan where he went and recorded some excerpts in front of the gramophone, which were then sold and incredibly successful. One of them was Amor Tivita, which is the famous aria he sings in Act Two, when he meets Fedora, telling her of his love for her. 
I thought we would just listen. I know we're getting a lot of old recordings, but I think it's exciting to get to hear what Enrico Caruso sounds like. So you'll notice that all the recordings we listened to, these were all recorded in the early 1900s. And they've all been done with piano, obviously, because many of these were done in a hotel room with piano or somewhere where they could get, A, they had to get the singers in there. And also there wasn't a lot of support yet for having opera recordings or recordings in general for music as opposed to being for like recording speeches or things like that. Another funny thing I always think about when reading reviews or learning a little bit about Caruso back in his time, because of course now we know Caruso is the great and magnificent Caruso. But at the time, some people actually perceived the way he sang to be somewhat provincial, or um, one might almost say, I don't want to say uncultivated. The, the way he sang was very romantic, obviously, and some people didn't see it as refined as other tenor opera singers at the time. Um, but obviously those tastes changed over time. I mean, that was arguably earlier in his career, and then later he became obviously a god in opera. So now we're going to Fedora at the Met, which has a very brief history, but nonetheless incredibly illustrious, because if you haven't yet caught on to the trend with this particular opera, is that it is generally a vehicle for great and famous opera singers. Basically, if it's going to be revived, you have to have a great cast in order to sing it because they basically carry the opera. And we will see from the reviews that the opera itself wasn't very well received, actually, but the singers were. So those singers in particular at the Met was Enrico Caruso again. And by this time, he was far more well-known than he was when he originally sang the role. And then we have Lina Cavalieri. So for those of you who don't know Lina Cavalieri, she was once known as the world's most beautiful woman. She was incredibly photogenic. And during her fame at the Met, which only lasted a few years, there were an obscene amount of photographs taken of her. Uh, she was particularly famous for her style, which was obviously wearing a corset at the time that was giving her that hourglass shape. She's definitely one of the examples that when people talk about the fat opera singers or the stereotype of the fat opera singers of the past, she's one of those where you say, well, actually, 
this discussion of weight has gone back for many, many years, and there are singers who got very popular who were very um, stereotypically attractive. So she was mostly a Verismo singer, and I just want to read for you some of the reviews from Fedora at the Met at this time. So one of them talks about that the opera was heard by a large audience, and it was evident at the end of the second act, which contains the most brilliant scenes and the greatest of its dramatic situations, that it had deeply stirred the listeners. So great was the enthusiasm over this scene after the principals had been called several times before the curtain and they had been overwhelmed with flowers. Mr. Caruso signaled to Mr. Vigna and the whole thing was done over again to the great delight of the demonstrative contingent of the audience. And yes, this was a thing that, well, I mean, definitely happened in the 19th century. I have heard only very rare examples of it happening in the 20th century, but where when audiences loved what they had seen, they would repeat it for the audience, which of course to us seems like, oh, but it would ruin the dramatic flow of the evening. Well, no, it was part of the event. A little about Miss Cavalieri, because I mentioned her. This is by W.J. Henderson in the New York Sun, and he says that Miss Cavalieri justified her reputation as a beauty. Her figure is exquisite and her face a delight to see. Her voice is a light lyric soprano, very pretty in quality, but not rich or vibrant. It has a good deal of tremolo and often runs to unrepentant shrillness. It is quite unsuited to some of the heavily accentuated declamatory passages in Giordano's score. I think it's a really interesting passage because Cavalieri's career was so focused on these Verismo operas that had these massive orchestras that she had to sing over. And yet I wonder why she was often cast in these operas. What about her suited it? And I wonder if sometimes it was that the image that was so compelling that it was worth doing that contrast. Another thing that's interesting to note is that when he's talking about the good deal of tremolo in her voice, it suggests maybe that there was some stress in her voice when she was singing. So one also when talking about the flutter, as we were um, mentioning before, singers at this time were adapting to bigger and bigger orchestras and also more and more dramatic music. And so coming to terms with that would have pushed their voices to means that they had never done before. And it's possible that a lot of them had flutters in their voices, just trying to meet the demands now of getting over that large orchestra. The next time that Fedora would be revived at the Met was in the 1920s. And it was revived with a very stellar cast, which was Marie Yuritsa, who was a famous a singer who sang Tosca, fell flat on her face during Visidarte, and then she got up and sang it with tears down her face. Now every Tosca who sings Visidarte has to be like down on her knees, right? This is the one and only Yuritsa. Um, and then Giovanni Martelli is singing with her. And then the next famous revival would be in 1996. And this is with Moretta Freni, as well as Domingo in the part of the Count. And this was bringing back the opera after 70 years. It's interesting when I keep making this argument about this opera being a vehicle because Freni was taking that opera around Europe. She had been singing it at Scala among other Italian companies and before she then brought it back to the Met after so long. So it's another instance where it not only took a singer who was saying, I'm doing this you know, to great acclaim all around this space and simultaneously also having the clout to be like, this is the reason we have to now revive this opera. You would have noticed when we read that review that talks about what audiences loved in the opera, they really loved, they hated, apparently hated the music of Act 1, uh, but they really liked the music of Act 2, and particularly the confession scene. So what happens here is when Fedora comes to Paris to talk to the Count and basically get a confession from him that he has killed her fiancé. And basically what happens is that in the background they're at a party because public scenes are the place to do this, and a pianist starts playing a virtuoso piano piece, and then she basically sings over almost kind of like harmonized with it, and, and treating him to tell her, to give the confession. 
And it's this scene apparently that absolutely inspired audiences. They loved the way that they had this diegetic moment in the opera. It's a great scene. It's definitely, I think some people have described it as nail-biting, the intensity before she screams out criminal. So another singer, Magda Olivero, many describe her as one of the last few links between the end of the era of Verismo composers and then the recording era so that we could capture this. Um, so Magda, actually, she retired early in her career. She was singing to great acclaim, and then she got married, as many women do in the, I believe it was around the 1940s, and she retired because one does not, no longer has a singing career if they marry their husband. The only reason that we have so many recordings of her thereafter is because, so it turns out, that at the request of Francesco Celea, some of you may know from his opera called Adriana Le Couvre, which was performed by Netrebko and Bechala a few years back at the Metropolitan Opera, he actually requested that she sing the title role in that opera again. And so she came out of retirement and then thereafter, as history goes, she just kept performing. The point that this anecdote shows us is that, again, she was sort of this favorite of the Verismo composers and clearly knew the style that they wanted. And so what exactly is that style? I'm going to do this quote, which is from Stephen Zucker. He's an incredibly uh, knowledgeable man about veristic opera, at least. And what he has to say about Olivero is that she was coached by Chilea and a number of now obscure Verismo composers and is the last singer with such a background for him. For me, she distills and exemplifies the tradition from Gemma Bellinzioni to Lina Cavalieri and then Bruno Raza. The Verismo era was transfigured by searing vocal actresses. Unlike Olivero, few also were consummate musicians able through rubato, lengthening or shortening notes or groups of notes, to convey the music's tension and repose. More, hers is the Il Cantare che nell'anima si sente, singing that is sensed in the soul. Her London Decca Fedora, made in 1968, is the last emotionally important commercial recording of an Italian opera. So she actually only made two complete operas into recordings in her career. She did a Turandot, which was back before she retired. And then she did this Fedora in 1968 with Mar Mario Della Monaco, which I think is one of the most fantastic recordings. And it makes me so sad that she didn't do other recordings as a result. And why is this? Okay, she is this incredibly visceral vocal actress. To me, 
I mean, hands down on the level of Maria Callas. But it's also, Maria Callas kind of cultivated her career on the microphone, so it's very nuanced and very subtle. Olivero is not like that. She cultivated her career mostly on the stage and then went into the recording studio very few times. So it's very over the top and you have these large sighs and she even like forces her, her voice to crack at certain moments for emotional effect. And it's just interesting. She also is marred by a very, what many will call an unattractive flutter in her upper range and throughout her range. So interesting again to think about why that's there, possibly because, you know, to strain or whatnot. What I want to play for you is to let you listen to some of that. And so I'm going to play for you the duet at the end of Act Two. So this is where Count Ipanov has confessed to Fedora. And basically she now, of course, is like, oh, well, you're a very noble man. I'm going to fall in love with you. And so we hear this ecstatic duet happen. And so what I want you to listen to, I mean, A, you're going to hear Mario Delmonico, who was a famous tenor of the 1950s. He sang with Maria Callas and Renato Tabaldi all the time. He was kind of known as like a foghorn. <laughs> um, it's very loud, very brassy. It was interesting because one of the anecdotes from when this was recorded, Magda Olivero claimed that he couldn't sing a piano because obviously we've established that she's a very musical singer. And so she constantly complained that there's this moment in the duet where they're supposed to both piano. And he could not. He When he gets to a high note, it was the same volume all the way throughout. And so anyway, she critiqued that. But I think it ends up being maintained in the recording. Here is that duet from that 1968 recording. What you're going to notice, as I mentioned, is yes, her dramatic voice, but also, as I mentioned, be prepared for a voice that is not conventionally attractive, but nonetheless very dramatic.
So as I noted, there's Magda, who we don't have um, much video. We, there's actually a Tosca of her, a uh, black and white Tosca that's recorded of her video. So I recommend going to watch that. She's quite the actress. Again, very over the top, but delightful. And then there's Renata Scotto, who to me always was the most fantastic woman at dying. I cannot find another actress who I've ever seen in an opera die as expertly as her. I always think of that, um, the Manon Lescaut she did with, it must have been with Domingo. And she just spends the entire last act for like 20 minutes just kind of like lying on her back on the floor. But somehow she's completely absorbed into the way that she's dying. I just think it's delightful. And it's no different in this production of Fedora. So I want you to listen to her voice because I always think she does really interesting things with her voice when she's, when she's again dying. And then we're going to listen to Magda. And you're just going to hear the way Magda, you heard in the other clip, the way she adds these visceral gasps after she'll like push her voice through a note and then <gasps> at the end of it which like just completely draws you in so you hear her when she's dying add these like gasps as if she's dying it's completely over the top but to me you don't even need to see her to just see her like rolling all over the floor so first Renato Scotto I just find her phenomenal. Um, so here's Magda doing the same passage.
That's all I have for you. Um, you can go home and decide which one you like better. That was Guild lecturer Matthew Timmermans discussing how star-studded revivals have expanded the operatic canon. Make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and thank you for listening.